Welcome to Looks Like New on KGNU's It's the Economy. I'm Nathan Schneider, a professor of media studies at CU Boulder. This is a show that asks old questions about new technology. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on Old Fashioned Radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Enterprise Design Lab at CU Boulder. This month, our guests are uh, Natalia Lombardo and Richard D. Bartlett, members of The Hum, an organization that offers practical guidance for self-organizing teams. The question that we're asking today is, can we collaborate at a distance? This comes in the context of the lockdown and uh, quarantines around the coronavirus, COVID-19. Uh, the world is changing. We all feel that, know that, um, anticipate even more, um, but we don't really know how. We don't know uh, what is becoming of us. One thing is clear, at least many of us are doing a lot more online, and um, in some of these cases, there may be no going back. Social distancing is shaping us and our relationship uh, to technology. One example I've certainly been thinking about a lot is, is the, that of the university. Um, I'm still teaching classes, uh, still seeing my students all online uh, over video, and it's making me wonder how much of the uh, live in-person classroom might feel extraneous after this. Um, I miss that classroom, um, but I also uh, recognize you know, it saves costs. There are some conveniences. Uh, uh, associated with being able to come to class from wherever you are? Uh, will we see a more headlong push into, um, into turning the university into a virtual experience as a result of this? And of course, many people's offices and, and workplaces are, are seeing similar shifts where people are uh, people who once uh, imagined that they could only do things uh, in person uh, together are recognizing that it is possible to do things at a distance. Um, well, of course, in the meantime, there are many other workplaces that can't shift online where people are, are um, facing uh, danger and exposure and doing care work and delivery and, and more. Uh, some people in this, uh, in this context find themselves kind of in uh, kind of as if they're on Mars uh, on a different planet having to uh, adapt to technologies and tools that they're not used to using. Uh, practices that they're unfamiliar with, habits of mind and, and relationship that they're not used to, while at the same time, others have been living in this kind of future for, for years, um, uh, already working as uh, decentralized teams, uh, working at a distance, um, collaborating with each other, um, using technology. And this is a moment where I think it's useful to learn from the experts, from people who have been uh, practicing these kinds of techniques uh, long before coronavirus appeared. To understand better the world we're finding ourselves in and moving toward, I'm turning to Nati and Rich um, uh, to, to speak from their experience uh, at the HUM. And they're also, they've also both been members of the worker cooperative Lumio, which produces open source software for digital decision-making. Uh, you can find uh, their work at thehum.org. Uh, Nati and Rich, uh, welcome to Looks Like New. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us, Nathan. Thank you. Now, can you say a bit about where you are right now? T tell us uh, uh, what Corona World looks like and means for you right now. Uh, so we are in Italy. We moved to Italy actually um, in July last year. So we're fairly new where we are. We are on the coast of Tuscany. Uh, in a small town and here like the pandemia doesn't didn't hit as hard as in other places in Italy although the lockdown has been pretty full-on uh, and as you know Italy has been the first one in in Europe to go into lockdown and into um, having to deal with this pandemia so we're been in lockdown for like over over a month now yeah five weeks yeah and so yeah, we're getting used to it, but it hasn't been so easy. The the thing for me, like we've been here since July and um, being migrants that are in a small town, you know, it's like, I, w 
I really didn't have a lot of social connection here and I was learning how to be okay with that, you know, to have, have my friendships and all my work happening online. I was learning how to do that and feeling quite satisfied about that, surprisingly, for someone who's like an extrovert and very social. Um, but something has really changed in this coronavirus situation that uh, there's, there's almost like something, something visceral, you know, in my guts that says in times of emergency, you should be surrounded by people that you love and trust and that you should be like, you know, I have this, I think both of us do have this sense of like, we should be, we should be of service, you know, we should be contributing to our community and the community yeah. should, should be holding us up in return. And being a, yeah, being a kind of outsider, being isolated here, it's really bringing up a kind of, um, yeah, basically a kind of fear that, that, that seems to operate at an animal level of like, you should be with your tribe right now. And, and um, yeah, it's, I'm really present with that at the moment. Yeah, it's a bit different for me, though, because um, I've been a migrant to many places throughout my life. So I'm a bit more used to just kind of being on my own or yeah, having having to relate to others in a more virtual way. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's interesting. But the not being able to be much of service because our language um, skills here are still not that good. Uh, I'm lucky enough that, you know, my mother tongue is Spanish, so at least I can understand quite a lot, but it's not the same that, you know, being able to communicate very well or or have deep conversations or, yeah, engage in a volunteer way some, with some organizations. So it's tricky. Now, where have you seen this, the kind of collaboration uh, work that, uh, inspired you to start up the hum? You know, wh- where have you seen, you know, that hum happening? What is, what is that name referring to? What is the hum? The hum is the sound of a humming team. It's like, um, I mean, it depends, it depends how metaphorical you want to get in my, in my more artistic side. It's like, you know, a barbershop quartet, uh, we have this, what to me is like a really beautiful art form of um, acapella music where people are bringing their voices together in harmony. And you start at the start of a performance of a barbershop quartet. There's always someone with um, a little, a little, what do they call a pitch pipe or something like that, where, where they, they sound the, the note first. They're like, you know, here's, hmm, here's a C or whatever. The, the starting note is that we all need to refer to. And then they break out into their beautiful harmony. And, my intention with the word the hum is that it's that hmm you know at the start of the song it's the it's the it's the tuning fork it's that note that you uh tune into and that yeah that's a very metaphorical artistic concept right um but the sense of musicality and that we have we're, uh, people that play music are, have a, a real deep competence in collaboration and and I'm trying to bring some of that um that knowledge of collaboration into, you know, out of the musical world and into the, into the workplace. So like one part is I use this word harmony, not to mean like everything is totally peaceful and there's no disturbances. I mean, harmony as in you have different voices singing different notes and maybe different rhythms, but they're all attuned to each other so that the different parts add up to something that's greater than the sum of the whole, you know, that, uh, sorry, the, the whole is greater than the sum of the yeah. parts. <laughs> um, so that in my musical experiences, there have been times where everyone is more or less improvising. There's no one in charge exactly. You know, there might be someone that's helping to coordinate things. You might have someone that's keeping the beat or um, laying down a, 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 a bass rhythm or something like that. That's kind of helping to coordinate, but everyone's really able to perform to their their distinctive strengths and capabilities and, and the story that they want to tell. And there's a way of doing that where everyone's paying attention to each other that you, you construct this, this whole picture, which is like a, yeah, a tapestry or, or some kind of collective endeavor, some collective voice that you can't get to with a singular identity. And that to me is the ambition. It's like, if we can, if we can collaborate so effortlessly and beautifully in, in musical terms, can we do the same in our workplaces, you know, in our, in our cooperatives and, um, where we've seen it, like the question about what examples, I mean, the, the, the founding story for me is where Nati and I met. We, we, 
um, caught each other's eye across the circle of the General Assembly during Occupy, you know, so Occupy Wall Street. The movement reached all the way down to New Zealand, where I'm from and where Nazi was visiting. And that was my introduction to sitting in circle and doing consensus decision-making, doing the whole assembly process. And it was certainly painful at times, but it was also a, a really remarkable expression of collective intelligence where the right process and the right mindset of the participants unleashed this kind of collective intelligence. You know, it's like, it's like a collective intelligence emerged uh, from between us all that no one could uh, lay claim to. And my sense of it at times was that the intelligence was just so much smarter than any of the individuals and not just smarter, but make more creative and more loving and more ambitious. And um, yeah, I got a taste of this, the sweet creature, which, which lives between us. And that that's been my pursuit ever since and lucky to have Nazi pursuing along with me. Now that that was in movement time, you know, a, a kind of, yeah. you know, I was I was in New York at the time, you know, uh, and and so we were kind of living parallel lives there. But um, uh, uh, that you know that was not in many respects what normal life, uh, something you can achieve in normal life or in an office, a uh, functional organization. It was a a kind of uh, unusual moment. How how do you carry? You know, what what other examples? Uh, uh, offer evidence that this is possible uh, for people during a, a work week. Well, it's interesting that you said like that was not the usual times. That was an unusual time. That was not the normal. And in a way, it's a little bit what we're experiencing right now, right now as well. Is that I guess that at that point, I don't know if it was the same for you, but my experience was um there's something very important right now that we need to be paying attention to and this is the time to collaborate if we want to be able to do that together and i wonder if you know if there's some of that happening right now as well where the things that seem important they're not so much anymore and there are other priorities coming more to the to the uh forefront but anyway just wrapping that uh thought um part of our main experience with doing really good team collaboration. It's been Lumio, of course. Um, that, that was our main place where we collaborated in a collaborative environment, in a co-op. And then inside and Spiral, like a much bigger network with a lot of different groups uh, trying to collaborate and finding different ways of doing it and trying to do, you know, find their own humming sound as well. Uh, I guess that there's a lot of different ways and different techniques that we have encountered over the years of what works and what doesn't work so much. And and just to be clear, Lumio is a kind of network of of organizations and especially based in Wellington, New Zealand, right, where uh, different companies are kind of working in tandem to um, uh, to achieve some common goals, to support each other, to to kind of bring out their best selves. Is that is that a good account of you, you know? So you're talking about two levels here. One is the mm. the company that you were working with, Lumio, which was producing yeah. a certain product, um, and then also this kind of cluster of organizations as well. Yeah, that's in spiral. That's the cluster. And so, so I mean, how far can this go? Like, for for instance, in in Occupy, I think a lot of people experience the kind of limits of some of the self governance practices that people were engaged in there. You know, they they often weren't so durable. They they um, uh, as much as they allowed some people to have um, voice that they'd never had, others felt shut out. Um, you know, how far do you think self-governing can really go, self-organizing, uh, as you put it? Do you ever, you know, question uh, whether, you know, the kind of utopia of, of, of workplace democracy is possible and scalable? Have you, have you noticed limiting factors that you think are kind mm. of absolute walls that, that teams will run into? I mean, in the in the bigger picture sense, I I I do believe in this thing called democracy. You know, so in a sense, like how far can self governing go? I think is I think <laughs> to the limits. Um, in the in the lived experience that people have of of so Occupy is a good example where um, anyone that participated and many people that even just observed are somewhat familiar with the limitations. And for me, the way that I understand that, there's kind of two categories 
I guess. One is about learning and flexibility. Um, so my experience of Occupy was like being, I was completely naive and I arrived into a place which was mostly filled with, with other people who are more or less naive, you know, that, that didn't have a lot of experience with doing collective organizing. They were quite fresh and just full of enthusiasm and idealism and willing to try stuff. Um, and we had a, a kind of rigorous commitment to certain principles, like always doing consensus for every kind of decision and always trying to include everyone and in everything. And that was such a break from where I'd come from that it was hugely inspiring and nourishing for me. But as we got more and more into it, it's like, I, I guess it's as if we didn't have the capacity to stop and reflect and then to learn and then to understand like what are the right tools for each context that we're in, you know? So like now, for instance, as, as a more mature collaborator, I'm really comfortable with the idea that there are different methods of making decisions and you can use a different method in a different scenario. So sometimes it's really crucial that you do a consensus process and you involve everyone and you really go through that long, slow process of building a shared understanding and you, and you really want to listen to every voice of dissent and use that as more um, fuel for your collective intelligence, you know, like listen to why people are saying no and then use that to alter the proposal until everyone loves it. Like there are- You're listening to Looks Like New. We've been speaking with Natalia Lombardo and Richard Bartlett uh, of The Hum. You can find out more at thehum.org. We're talking about how to collaborate at a distance. We'll be right back. Coverage of breaking news is made possible by KGNU members. One way to help us bring you this coverage is by donating a vehicle you no longer need. Learn more at KGNU.org or call 1-844-KGNU-CAR. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. This month, we're speaking with uh, Nati Lombardo and Rich Bartlett of thehum.org, and they were exploring together the question of how we can collaborate at a distance. So tell us a bit about the day-to-day work of the HUM. How do you work with teams? How do you help them uh, think about their self-organizing and their collaboration? So um, interestingly enough, just before this uh, whole uh, pandemia thing broke around the world, we were already preparing our online course. So um, just a bit of background on that. For the past four years, basically, we've been traveling around the world Uh, giving in-person trainings and working with organizations in person all over. And when we arrived here in Italy, I guess we started to be a bit tired of all that moving Mm. on one hand. And then on the other hand, knowing that that's not very sustainable um, for the environment or even for us. So we decided to try to shift from the in-person trainings to the online space And we created our Patterns for Decentralized Organizing course that that's basically condensing all the knowledge that we learned about what collaboration, um, what are the things that help collaboration, what are the things that support groups to collaborate very well, and what are the main challenges um, that groups face and how they they can solve them. So... Basically, what we do with teams when they come to us, if they want our support, is first we analyze the team. So we do a big survey. We read their documentations. We have conversations with the team. We understand what's going on for them. We try to understand them and understand what are the challenges they're facing. And then we provide with some uh, content. We give them some training on particular areas that they might need more knowledge. And we support them to generate internally their capacity for improving. And their capacity for improving from our perspective is something that happens uh, in iteration. It's not something that happens, uh, for example, like, making a huge plan on how to change everything and then spending a whole year trying to change everything upside down. But it's about grabbing a few changes that people can do right away that they can start working on that everyone is excited about and then stopping and reflecting regularly and making small improvements all the time. So basically that's how we work 
with a team, but we also offer training and advisory and coaching to uh, people, just individuals that are trying to do this or that they're working inside an organization and they want to improve their own ways of working. How have you seen teams change? You know, tell us a bit about what this what this uh, work does to um, uh, to the teams that you work with. What can one of the com- one of the common challenges with the groups that we are working with. I mean, we do work with quite a range of groups, but they tend to be people who are because of just because of their values and their beliefs. You know, they're, they're the kind of people who are really committed to inclusion and it's almost part of their identity or something that's woven very deeply into their DNA, that the sense of like, we should be doing things together, you know? So a lot of the people that we work with, they're working in cooperatives um, and other, other kinds of collaborative environments. And one of the examples of the change that will often happen working with us is there's this, (laughs) there's this recurring problem that I basically think of as too much consensus, like um, a habit of, um, uh, because we want to be inclusive and because we want to be collaborative, we involve everyone in decision-making and we make sure that we hear everybody's voice. And that can, like I say, I think it's important to do that for some specific, um, specific important crucial decisions, but there's plenty of decisions that you can quite happily make with not such a full deep process of, of engagement. And so one of the interventions that we'll frequently do in a team is to give them the language and and the methods of different kinds of ways that you can approach a decision and and to build internally their own almost like a map that they would use internally for like when I encounter this kind of scenario what's the appropriate decision method to take here like do I need to escalate this to a full consensus process or is this something that I can do in a in a smaller working team or is this something that I can just decide on my own and getting shared agreement about there are different types of decisions and that it's appropriate to use different methods for those types. Like that's one example of how you can, um, yeah, help a team to be more, more effective, more efficient, um, and still not compromise on their values of inclusion on the important stuff. It reminds me of Oh no, sorry. Go ahead, Nati. Um, I think another big thing for teams when, when they work with us is sometimes, uh, starting to understand that the challenges that they face is not just them, mm. but a lot of groups face the same challenges. That it's not that they're broken or that they can't collaborate or they don't know how to do it. It's that we all as humans um, maybe are not that prepared yet to arrive to certain levels of collaboration or that we all face the same, you know, we, we all get... Um, yeah, we all get challenged by the, in the same ways and when we're trying to do this. So in a way, they'll learn that they're not alone, that there's others are encountering the same. And also they, they start to be able to put a language into the challenges they face. They're starting to be able to see the things and recognize them and put a language so they can discuss it. It's like, you know, put a, shining a light on something that you couldn't quite pick what it was. Mm. So then by bringing it to, to the forefront, they can talk about it and start trying to figure out what to do with it. And for for teams that are used to working together, relying on uh, in person, relying on the high bandwidth um, mm-hmm. interactions of of an in person team, and that are shifting toward uh, lower bandwidth um, encounters, working primarily online, maybe not able to rely on some of the same emotional and kind of intuitive signaling that we as humans are used to doing. You know, are, are there some kind of first steps that teams should take as they pivot toward this lower bandwidth kind of interaction, um, if that in fact is what it is? Um, and, you know, where, where, where should they begin as they make that transition? I think that's a really important question. Uh, I worked with a with someone who was kind of a, ahead of the curve on being a remote worker, being a distant worker, and and he really demonstrated a way of communicating online that I found quite inspirational, which was basically to over communicate in a sense. Like, um, I only get to see this person mostly through text comments, you know, like in our chat room 
or on our discussion forum. And so, yeah, like you say, there's, there's a lack of bandwidth there. Like there's, there's not that much texture that you can um, put into these little text comments. And so he was really good at like, you know, if I ever said something, if I ever typed something and it frustrated him, he'd let me know that it frustrated him, you know, because when, when you're communicating face to face, you can easily read, most people can can pick up a little signal, a nonverbal signal of like, hmm, the way that I'm expressing this is not landing for you or like it's, uh, I can see that there's something going on that's preventing this communication from getting across smoothly. And when you don't have that real-time high-quality feedback, you have to um, compensate that, compensate for that somehow. So we'll, we say, for instance, that we use this phrase bandwidth. We say like if you find yourself in a... Uh, experiencing some kind of tension in the way that you're communicating, that's usually a sign that you do need to escalate. So if you're in a, if you're, say you're in an uh, email discussion list or something and you, you bump into someone, you have this sense of like, ah, this is really landing poorly. Then we say escalate. So escalate from the email could be to a chat room where at least you're, you're live and you're going back and forth. And then escalating again could be to have a a phone call so you can hear each other's voice and, and, get a sense of the, the humanity of the other person. And then escalating again would be to a video call and beyond that, then, okay, then you actually have a face-to-face presence and, and having that shared competency, I guess, in the team of understanding that this is a completely different mode to be working in, you know, that you're not, um, they, that your expectations have to shift and our behaviors have to shift to, to accommodate for the different limitations of these different kinds of spaces. And when we're talking about communication, it's not about, more communication, but more clear communication. Mm. And that's the distinction there because a lot of people think that just by adding extra words, the other person will understand me. But it's more about trying to think, how can what I'm writing be misunderstood? Mm. So think about that first and then make sure that you put all the all the parts that need to be there for the other person to understand the context that you're coming from, to understand what you're actually trying to say. It's, it's just a bit different. I think the other dimension that's probably useful to add, which often doesn't get so much attention, is about the the, the social dimension, the, the the interpersonal care. Like when you are sharing a physical space together, it's really common that there'll be one or two people in the group that are just very caring, nurturing people. And they might express that care through very subtle gestures. It might not be that they are you know, sitting you down like a therapist and talking about your feelings, but they, they're the ones that bring you a cup of tea or just give you that little hand on your shoulder that makes you feel like um, everything is okay and you're part of the team and that you're, you, they somehow attend to, to your emotional body in a way. And if you lose that contact, like we are at the moment where we're being physically distant from each other, again, I think there are... Um, extra we can we can put in sort of extra practices to to compensate for the lack of that that social dimension so we've been doing a a lot of different experimentation with okay if we don't get to hang out with each other and enjoy that you know end of the day beer after work or whatever is our um socializing activity can we reproduce that in some way so that people are still being looked after that they still have a space to give voice to their emotional state um that they have a space just to relax and to talk about whatever hobbies they've got that are not necessarily connected to the the crucial task of the day that that has been a real theme for us i think to to kind of compensate for the lack of sociability that you get when you're not sharing physical space together to say like that's also important and um how yeah it's 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 quite um it's quite an art form, I think, to work out how to create these spaces for care and sociability when they don't just organically arise like they might in a, in a nice working environment, in a nice office. You know, conversely, you know, you were talking earlier about working with teams that are overdoing the consensus side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I've certainly seen that. You know, I know when I work with cooperatives, it's often, you know, remind them you don't have to reinvent every wheel um, from the corporate world. You know, there might be some things that, um, you know, that are kind of standard practices that are that for a reason. Um, But when you're working with an organization that isn't used to um, self-organizing and self-governing, that that isn't using that as the starting point, that's that's more familiar with 
um, having people do what they're told and having a kind of hierarchy of decision making and authority. Um, where do you where might you begin uh, in introducing practices of self governance? What, what are the kind of baby steps uh, that help them feel their own power? I guess one thing will be probably working groups. So instead of having the whole team working under a manager and the manager having to, you know, supervise every little task and doing that in an individual way, is putting people together for a particular project or for a particular area. Just they can still have the manager supervision, but at least they can make more decisions together and start to collaborate in that smaller team just to start getting used to it. And then probably having the, the person that normally is in a position of leadership, be the manager or anyone else, try start encouraging others to take on some small of the responsibilities that they have or things, simple things like who's facilitating the meeting mm. or maybe passing on this um, a little bit what we were talking about, the, you know, the caring for each other and that can also be coaching or supervision, things like that, starting to pass that into maybe a few other people, or maybe they can do it with each other, giving feedback to each other and things like that. Just starting to find smaller places to start delegating and start empowering others to take on more leadership positions and leadership roles. And I mean, we don't work very much like we don't go into a traditional top-down hierarchy and then say hey we want to convince you to change that's not really our approach we're mostly working with people that are already on some kind of journey towards deepening their collaboration and and moving towards self-management um but when we do have to work with groups that are more yeah that, that have a more traditional way of doing things often the first step is to create a little bubble like a little, a little space that is set aside and it says like when you're in this group, this working group or this team, we are going to prototype some new behaviors. We're going to test out what happens if we shift our normal way of working and just in this, in this domain, we're going to use a different type of decision-making and we're going to use maybe some different communication tools or, um, yeah, just experimenting with... I mean, the question that Nati always brings to a team is like, how do we want to be together? Like we start with that question, how do we want to be? What are the sort of qualities that we want to bring forth? And what are the things that we, what kind of behaviors do we want to see? What things we want to avoid? Having that conversation is a really generative place to start from, to to uncover like, oh, I really would, you know, I would, I want to be respected. I want to be heard. I want to have space for creativity. I want to be with people who I think are competent and trustworthy, getting these ideas out of the room of like, what is actually the the way of working that's right for us, getting that as a locally constructed ideal and then taking iterative steps towards that ideal. So what's the, what's the first step that we can take this week to be a little bit more like that picture that we drew together? You're listening to Looks Like New. We're speaking with Nati Lombardo and Rich Bartlett of The Hum, an organization that offers practical guidance for self-organizing teams. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. This month, we're speaking with Nati Lombardo and Rich Bartlett of The Hum uh, about the question of how we collaborate at a distance. Now, uh, Nati and Rich, you're both part of, or have been part of the Lumio project, which builds uh, technology for self-governance. Um, do you, do you think we have the technology that we need for effective collaboration uh, or do we need more R&D? Do we need to be developing new tools to enable um, a kind of uh, the, the, the kinds of collaboration you uh, try to support to happen more easily? Or, or do we really have the tools in place? We just have to learn how to use them. I'm a big believer in using the tools that we have. So, 
in in Spiral, for instance, this network, we have 200 people and we do a lot of experimentation with shared money. So people choosing to contribute some of their income to a collective account and then um, treating that money like a internal crowdfunding system where people can propose, I would like to spend the collective account on this or on that. And for the first couple of years, we just did that with a spreadsheet and some good facilitation. You know, that, that there's um, a human that's doing most of the work and then there's this little very commonplace kind of technology in the background that's helping that process work. And then over time, we've, we've developed that process mostly in the human space and then over time worked out, okay, this is a system that works for us. Let's encode that in software and build our own software that makes that process more efficient, more reliable, takes less human effort. Um, that method I'm really comfortable with that we start with, let the humans do their thing. And then over time, see which parts we can digitize and automate. Um, whereas, I mean, obviously there's a, there's so much room for improvement, right? Like, uh, I mean, I am an engineer and a technologist. I always want to be constructing new tools. I think we can always have better tools, but I'm really mm, cautious about the sense of like, Oh, we could we could collaborate, but we just don't have the right tools, and so we need to invest all of this time and money into getting the right tools, and then maybe we'll be able to collaborate. You know, so like the example of Lumio, we found a lot of people um, would come to Lumio thinking that this was going to be the the they, they could just download collaboration. You know, like if I just get the right tool into my team, um, that should that should transform all of our interpersonal dynamics, and we'll suddenly be really effective collaborators. And it's, it doesn't actually work that way. Like the the tool is only as good as as the people that are using it, and the and the techniques that people are using, and the clarity, and the ability to learn, and the ability to support each other. At the same time, it's it's striking. Uh, uh, you know, for instance, to um, uh, use a tool like Lumio, uh, which is designed for this kind of collaboration and interaction in comparison to, for instance, you know, a Facebook group where it's a lot harder, for instance, to make sure that everybody in the group gets a certain notification. Um, right. you know, just because the tool is not designed for, um, for people doing things together, it's designed, you know, to facilitate advertising. And, and um, there are kind of some critical moments where that becomes uh, clear and and where you have to hack the existing tool in order to do something that should be seems like should be kind of basic um, yeah but you know, nevertheless are there particular strategies that you recommend for how teams should think about their technology stack for sure for sure i mean there's the there's the kind of general advice of make sure people are supported that they are given the space and the support they need to learn how to use the technology that they require for their job, that's often overlooked and really doesn't have to be that difficult, but just, you just have to do it. You just have to make space where people can ask the simple questions and get their questions answered together. And then in terms of like a, a strategy for how to compose a technology stack that makes sense for your context, the one, the one kind of starting place that we usually use in teams is, this concept, um, we call it the digital trinity. It comes from uh, a long history of online communities. You'll see this pattern be reproduced in lots of different online communities over the last couple of decades. And the trinity is like this idea that there are at least three different kinds of communication and it makes sense for them to happen in different places. So the first one is real time. So that's about um, rapid, short-term like like a chat room, people are using Slack a lot these days or an IRC or Telegram or WhatsApp, one of these um, instant messages where the the use that that space is designed for rapid feedback. It's designed for informal chat. It's not designed, I think, for long-term deliberation or really considered thinking, um, but it's really useful for just getting very rapid feedback. <laughs> And that's as distinct from the second channel that we would call asynchronous. And so like the asynchronous channel is asynchronous, meaning people are not expected to be on it at the same time. You know, you can contribute in your own time. You can participate in your own time. So whether that means uh, you live in the same area, but you have different schedules, or it means that you're living in different time zones, people can contribute whenever it suits them. 
And so those are platforms like Lumio fits in here, but any kind of discussion forum, um, a, a mailing list, that sort of thing, where instead of expecting an immediate response, you're putting a little bit more packaging around the message that you've got to share so that it's, that it makes more sense tomorrow and the day after, you know, that there's some, yeah. like an email starts with the subject, right? So you say like, this is the topic of what we need to talk about. And then you can, you share the relevant information and then you end with a question or a, um, a, an invitation for people to engage. So there's a bit more, it's a bit more formal. There's a bit more thought going into it in the asynchronous space. And then the third category is what we call static or something like static, semi-static. And that's usually like, a wiki, um, Google Docs fits in here. Um, any, basically any kind of documentation, frequently asked questions, policies, procedures, and agreements, all that sort of stuff where you have um, information that doesn't change very frequently that you need to return to uh, as, a, as a reference. So introducing, often we'll introduce in a team this idea that there are at least these three different categories. And so let's have different tools for those three jobs. So, uh, so it, once people have a, a, a sense of like, okay, there's different modes, which is the right tool for the job? You know, so like when I'm working on a new design for the website, if I just want some rapid feedback on that, I'll put it into our chat room and it's informal and I'm, I'm just expecting if there's anyone around today, they'll, they'll jump on and give me some quick feedback. But if I'm doing something which is more like, yeah, what's our annual strategy or what's our employment policy that's going to go into the Lumio space. And we'll think about that and deliberate over the number of days, possibly weeks until we get to a conclusion. And then once we've got that conclusion, once we've decided, okay, here's our new policy, then that will go into our handbook, into our, into our static channel. That's a great set of distinctions. So synchronous, asynchronous and static, right? Yeah. And, you know, beyond the tech stack, um, what, kinds of decision-making structures do you think are best suited for working at a distance, right? Do, do people have to step back into more structured organizations or do you think that, that distance collaboration lends itself toward more kind of empowerment of individuals because they're working in their, in their own spaces? Or do, do you think that, you know, if suddenly we are, continuing to work for longer periods of time uh, uh, in, in this socially distanced kind of fashion, what um, kinds of governance and management structures do you expect are going to arise and, and, and evolve? Hmm. This is very speculative. Um, but one thing that I'm seeing immediately happening is suddenly all over social media, people are talking about uh, I've been on 15 Zoom calls today. You know, this like suddenly uh, there's this overload of people doing video conferencing, and and I expect that there's a second wave that comes after that, which is where people realize that this working from home is not just about uh, decentralizing in space; it's also about decentralizing in time. And this is why I mentioned the asynchronous channel is that there are ways of working where people can contribute to their own department, their own domain, their own little piece of the puzzle without being in real time with another person. Like that there's ways of um, breaking up the work so that it actually suits people working uh, in this, in this asynchronous way. And that's a, it's a real shift. It's a real um, change in, in habits and attitudes. It's not the kind of thing that I expect is going to happen really, really rapidly, but it does enable a much, yeah, I think a much more creative uh, way of being where it forced, the only way you can do that is if people are empowered, right? Like you, you need to be able to go away by yourself for a few days of deep work and then come back and say, here is the, here is this contribution that I've got to our collective efforts. And so that, that requires decision-making methodologies which allow people to go off on their own for a while before they come back. So that might look like, you know, we often will talk about delegation or mandates where people are given an explicit boundary that says within this domain, you have complete creative authority and you can do what you think is best and then bring it back to us at the end of the week. And that's quite a change from people who are used to being in 15 meetings a day. Um, and I think, um, like I say, not the easiest thing to achieve, but does have a, a real a real benefit in terms of efficiency and creativity. Nati, do you see it similarly? Yeah, definitely. I think there's 
there's a big piece as well that is not just, of course, about the technology or the tools that we use, but the the behavior and the culture that we have. And I think that's what is going to take the longest to change in this scenario. Suddenly, people that are not working uh, together all the time, that they're not in an office, that they don't have the manager looking over their shoulder or that they don't have that rapid feedback when they can just, you know, go and quickly ask a question or look back or or that they are used to sitting in a meeting and um, the meeting being the space where everything happened and everything is decided and everything is discussed. It takes time to learn a new way of doing things. And it's not just time, but it's also being able to have that conversation, as Rich was saying before, how do we want to be together? How do we want to work together? Uh, how do we work in this new scenario? What are the things that we need to change? What are the behaviors that we want? What are the things that we don't? How can we support each other to learn the new skills and new ways of doing things? I think it takes, it takes and it, it might take a lot of rethinking as well on what are the cultures and behaviors that we, that we have. Now, do you see any kind of leading indicators of where COVID is taking us? Um, you know, what about the old world will come back and what will change? Um, do you see a kind of embrace of any features of this of this new world we're entering? It's, it's a really tricky one. And for the last week, at least, we've been starting to talk about this. And to be honest, I, I don't know. I've been sitting on this thinking, what what is going to happen? Where where can this go? And it's such an uncertainty um, at the moment that any it can go any way, uh, pretty much. One thing that is obvious is that people are going to get a lot more used to remote working. And at least that might change a lot of the ways on how teams organize and how people organize their work. Uh, but beyond that, I actually have no clue what's going to happen. I, I have a... F- I, I totally agree that it's extremely speculative and it, and it feels like there's a million different options and I really am not willing to call which one's coming. But yeah. one of the ones that has been noticeable to me is the change in family life. So like one of my um, friends and collaborators has a young toddler and she's used to a way of working, which is like, okay, the, the kid goes to daycare and then I do the work and then I've got this whole juggling process to try and balance all the parts of my life to like get something that works. And in the first couple of weeks of being in quarantine, she was really struggling with having to deal with, ah, there's no childcare. It's just me. I've got to deal with this. I'm, I'm, try, I'm trying to be a mother at the same time as I'm being a worker and kind of doing two jobs at once. And at first, the first couple of weeks, that was extremely stressful and uncomfortable. And then what I could see from, at least from what I heard from her over the third and fourth week, it was like something changed where it's like her priority shifted and she made peace, I think, with this idea that, okay, I'm going to, like, I'm not going to be the same worker that I was. Um, And this is an opportunity to be, uh, to do a kind of parenting that I wasn't doing before, which is just, I've kind of been forced into this much more engaged, constantly hands-on kind of parenting that I wasn't doing before. Um, but it seemed like something relaxed in her that she's like embraced that, okay, this is what's going to have to happen. And now, now she's saying, Oh, I don't want to go back. You know, I don't want to, I, I don't want to go back to that other world that I was living, which was like totally packed. And I had to do this complex juggling act. And uh, sh- she's saying, you know, I, I never can imagine having that amount of um, working out of the home ever again. And I don't know if that will change, you know, like we'll see how that, how that lands afterwards, but the whole, yeah, this whole relationship between, between parents and children and, and how education's happening as well, you know, this big sudden influx of homeschooling as well. It's, I suspect that there is got, there are people at the moment who are quietly having a experience of, I really love this, you know, like there's obviously some of the limitations are, I mean, they're obvious, um, but there are some real highlights to a slower way of working, you know, like suddenly all the time that I used to spend commuting, I can spend that time reading a book or playing with my kids or doing my meditation practice or whatever else people want to be doing. I, I suspect that that um, could, yeah, I, I, I am naturally optimistic. I am clinging on to the possibilities of how people's priorities are being reevaluated. There's also obviously, a, a, I suspect, a, a push towards more localism, that people are realizing that 
efficiency is not the only thing that we can optimize for. We can also optimize for resilience and robustness. And um, the people that have a supply chain, you know, like if your food is coming from 30 miles away or 3,000 miles away, your sense of safety right now is you're going to be having a really different experience. And so I suspect that there'll be more of a focus on local, locally connected, locally produced, um, knowing, yeah, and just getting your head around the supply chains that are actually crucial for your life. Again, optimistic and hopeful. I mean, I'd like, I'd like to hear your take. I've, I feel like I'm, I'm a bit with Nazi of this thing. Oof, it's confusing and I don't know, but what are you seeing? What do you think? Well, I, I shared that, uh, uh, you know, that uncertainty, m- m- maybe even more uh, than you've expressed. I, I, um, I feel, you know, this question of, of our cognitive biases really close to, to, to me right now. You know, I, I uh, as this crisis was approaching, felt so, um, so much uh, of, of a kind of inability to conceive of what was going on because, um, uh, because we're, we just get so used to the way things are and uh, it, it's so hard to imagine how the world is changing. So I've just been trying to embrace that, um, that uncertainty and, you know, talk with folks like you who, you know, are thinking through it as well. And, and, uh, and you know, we're all learning from each other in this. On that note, Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for being here, uh, Natalia Lombardo and Richard Bartlett of The Hum. Thanks for having us, Nathan. You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been speaking with Nati Lombardo and Rich Bartlett of The Hum. Uh, you can find more about them. They work uh, with self-organizing teams, offering practical guidance on you know, how to deepen their work. Uh, you can find more about them online at thehum.org. I'm Nathan Schneider, a professor of media studies at CU Boulder. Looks Like New is a production of CU's Media Enterprise Design Lab. You can find out more about our work at uh, colorado.edu slash lab slash medlab. If you liked what you heard, please spread the word about this show, uh, leave reviews wherever you get your podcasts. And I'd love to hear from you also with comments and guest ideas. You can reach me at medlab at colorado.edu. I hope you'll join us next month.